Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. This episode is part of a public engagement project funded by the Beacon Bursary Scheme at University College London. We're incredibly lucky to be part of this project that has brought six young adults who have had radiotherapy together with radiation researchers funded by Cancer Research UK, RadNet, City of London to record special episodes of the podcast. So these episodes will give each young adult a chance to share their stories and also have important conversations about cancer research and patient involvement in research. So we would like to introduce Sophie Lambert and Rebecca Drake. Hi both. So Sophie, would you like to just introduce yourself quickly? Yeah, my name is Sophie. Um, I'm 26 and yeah, we were just saying before, we've, I've recently got married, so that can be a nice starting point. But yeah, I'm excited to be on the podcast. Congratulations. Becca? Hello, my name is Becca. Um, I'm a final year PhD student based at Barts Cancer Institute and I'm funded by RADNET. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being on a podcast. I met Sophie as part of um, a project called Radiation Reveal, which was working with young adults who experienced radiotherapy as part of their cancer treatment and um, I was one of the researchers involved in that patient engagement project and I think I I really benefited from it and since then I've been doing a lot more public and patient engagement. So Sophie if you feel comfortable would you mind telling us a bit about um, your cancer diagnosis? Yeah no problem so um, yeah I got diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma back in June 2020. Uh, kind of was a bit of a struggle to get to that diagnosis just because of it was during the height of COVID and yeah it was obviously hard for everyone to get appointments kind of a lot of my symptoms were kind of the breathlessness the um coughing constantly I was unable to sleep pretty much every single symptom I was kind of feeling just I just didn't feel right in myself because I'm usually quite a a sporty like fit kind of person but being able to not be able to say walk up the stairs without struggling when I got to the top was just I just knew something wasn't right um so then I think it wasn't until I was literally coughing and I turned blue that I was like right I need regardless of COVID and what's happening I need to be seen now because a few months prior to that I'd gone to A&E and just been sent away kind of with antibiotics and was like, okay, see if this kind of clears your cough, but clearly it didn't. And yeah, basically I eventually went for a chest x-ray and they said, you've got to go to hospital. Looks like you've got like a lot of like fluid on your lung. So we're going to drain that. And yeah, next thing you know, I'm kind of having a biopsy. I've got a drain in and I've been given a cancer diagnosis which was honestly just shocking really and like obviously completely changed everything. Sophie did you have any idea was that something that kind of had gone through your head that it could be cancer? Um, I I, I don't think it did um, because I knew something wasn't right and it was really serious but before Obviously, before I had cancer, I really hadn't really spent any time in hospital. I was quite quite a well person and didn't didn't 
very rarely even got like poorly. So to kind of go to from one to extreme to another was yeah, it kind of did catch me a bit off guard and it was kind of hard. And I was obviously in hospital at the time on my own because of COVID. So to get that diagnosis on my own at my age as well, I was 23 at the time. It it was, yeah, obviously life-changing. Sophie, did you find that because of the pandemic, it was harder to get a diagnosis? People were thinking maybe you had COVID or COVID symptoms. Yeah, 100%. I think had I not been presenting with a cough and shortness and breath and all these respiratory symptoms may they were kind of like once once covid and lockdown's over come back and we'll it was a bit like we don't know when this is going to end i can't can't carry on like this and I, at the time obviously i was working from home and i didn't really have a social life anyway so yeah it it really did obviously delay my diagnosis because i think i first went to the hospital probably around the January so obviously then Covid hit the March so it was all and I didn't get diagnosed until the June so yeah definitely had an impact. Reflecting back on that experience Sophie as a young person how does it make you feel now? Uh, (laughs) I feel like your first response is to say angry Um, as much as we obviously had to shut the country down and that there was a lot of people I know have had misdiagnosis or kind of delays in their treatment because because of the pandemic and it's it's hard that maybe if we wasn't going through that at the time I might not have had a stage four diagnosis and it could have been um, prevented or or found earlier I guess. Sophie, if you feel comfortable, can you talk us through kind of what happened after your diagnosis? Yeah, so um, I think I got, obviously, um, I got transferred over to UCLH in London, um, which at the time was like, okay, these guys are like the best in the business. If there's any place that I'm going to be, it's there, thankfully, rather than my local hospital. And... Yeah, I ended up actually having to go into intensive care for a month because I think my tumour had got so big that when they were giving me chemo, they they needed to kind of be there um, on standby for my first two cycles. Um, yeah, so then I had I had six um, R-chop treatments of chemo. And then I had 20 sessions of radiotherapy. But yeah, as I say, like, um, and this is kind of my main point of maybe speaking today is like the the longer term side effects that I now have to live with as a result of like the treatment that I had at the time. Can I just ask what your initial perception of radiotherapy was? Because I, I just always find it quite interesting. And I know you've spoken before about the kind of the stigma against radiotherapy maybe being an easier treatment because chemotherapy has all of these visible side effects, um, whereas radiotherapy, yeah, it's more of a silent treatment and you maybe feel the effects later on. It's, it's hard to know because uh, at the time, yeah, it was I, I had to go through my chemo, I had to do the radio to 
to get rid of the tumour that was there. But in turn, had I known it was going to cause all of these issues, um, I don't know, it would have maybe, I would have asked maybe more questions back back then rather than just get on with it because your body kind of don't, goes into fight or flight. And it's not until after you've, you've finished your treatment, I found that you actually go, wow, like what did I actually just go through? Is it your responsibility though to know about the data facts or is it ours as healthcare professionals to be giving you everything? But then I suppose the other element is how do we not give you too much information to overload you? Yeah, I guess, I guess it like, yeah, you should, you guys kind of should be telling us because yeah, we don't understand what, what's going to happen and why certain things are happening to our body, I guess. And to have that information probably would be quite reassuring because most people are only going to Google it after, uh, which Dr. Google obviously isn't the way to go. Um, so, yeah, I think obviously it, it would be nice to, sometimes when I speak to other people that come through similar, they know information and I'm like, I have no idea any of that. And I don't know if they like shielded me from it or sometimes I think because I'm living with such bad side effects now, did they did they know that and are they shielding it because at the time they were like, right, we just need to get her better. Um, but I guess I'll never really know. Sophie, do you think that potentially we need to change the consent procedure because I know that you know in terms of kind of late effects it's part of the consent process but I'm just thinking about I don't know say public health advice around nutrition or public health advice around physical activity we emphasize always that we should make every contact count with our patients so that little and often we have snippets of information that are given to patients along their pathway and repeated many, many times. Do you think that having one single consent procedure where you're told absolutely everything, you're given a single form and told to sign it, do you think that maybe we need to change our procedural consent processes to allow people time to maybe really clearly think about late effects and the impact that potentially it might have on their life not to change maybe the outcome because I would imagine and again you can correct me if I'm wrong but a lot of people in that moment would be well yes I absolutely want to do treatment because I want to live but having more knowledge and having more consideration because you've had longer to digest the information and you're told about the late effects much more frequently, do you think that would have helped you? Yeah, I think so. Like at the time when I was presented with the chemo and the radiotherapy, I guess the radiotherapy is kind of seen as the, it's not as big a deal because it's kind of a silent treatment as such. You don't, you don't lose your hair. You don't, it's just, yeah, you're, you're just lying there and you are waiting for this thing to zap through you and hopefully kill all the cancer cells that are remaining. So I definitely think that the consent form should maybe be different for, for something like chemo and radiotherapy. I understand with things like a, 
an operation or you broke your leg that's kind of most of the time the outcome is going to be pretty similar whereas you don't know how people are going to respond to chemotherapy and radiotherapy and I think it's just the importance of everyone being treated on a kind of an individual basis. Did you receive any like support on how to communicate with all these different people especially like given the whole medical language and I don't know it sounds really complicated and also you're a young person um did you receive any support as a young adult to navigate that system yeah I definitely think that like I was a bit blase when I went into radiotherapy um it's kind of that last little bit where you're like right I can I can do this it's I'm so close to finishing treatment like and that's obviously all you want at the time is to just (laughs) get out of this like rut that you're in um and at the time I didn't radiotherapy didn't really cause me any side effects I was just going there 10 minutes in the scanner coming home obviously I was naturally tired because I had 20 sessions of it and going up to I lived two hours away so two hours there two hours back just just to sit there for 10 minutes um it was kind of taking the life out of me but I yeah they were I feel like I just stood in my mind that you're just going to have really irritated skin and that'll that'll probably be it. We'll, we'll send you away with some cream. And that's kind of how it was left on the radiotherapy front for me. Like I had a follow-up four weeks after, I think. They said, you're doing all right. And then they discharged me and I don't think I've spoke to them since. <laughs> Sophie, can I ask what side effects you're now experiencing? Yeah, so um, kind of due to the the tumour being in my chest area, um, I think at the time it kind of encroached onto my heart and has caused like problems in my lungs. So obviously when I first got that diagnosis and I had the fluid in my lung, um, that kind of just kept reoccurring and it is still reoccurring. So I know that I've got fluid sitting there on the lungs and ultimately they've drained it a few times and it just comes back. But that's because um, the heart's not pumping properly or been damaged because of whether that be where the tumour was, the treat, the radiotherapy and the treatment that I had or yeah, any other kind of the side effects that I'm having. So I now have to like kind of I've got all these different departments that I have to speak to regularly um, because I'm still waiting for a referral to the late effects clinic, which I think for me personally, I think would be better for me to be on because it's kind of all of them under one umbrella rather than me speaking to an oncologist this week and then a cardiologist another week. And I've got a history of blood clots, so I'm speaking to a clotting team and a respiratory team and it's like this I'm meant to be three years post-treatment and I still feel like I'm very much in the cancer world because I'm constantly going to appointments and having to liaise between the teams because they can't seem to have a conversation between themselves so it's yeah it's piecing together all that information and sometimes all their information kind of um they don't, they're not talking from the same page. So 
it's kind of hard to sometimes who's right, who's wrong. Um, and that's why you just, yeah, the more information I have, the better, because then I can, I can present it to these doctors and say, look, this person's told me this and I like just trying to obviously help me is, is kind of should be the, the priority. Can I just ask if you had any support on how to navigate um, communicating with all these different oncologists and specialists, especially being quite young? I mean, I don't imagine your parents would have gone with you. Um, but yeah, also the obstacles being a young adult with this diagnosis in um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah, um, not really. They kind of say, we've read the notes from this doctor and then they tell me what they think we should do or the next course of action is. But I do, yeah, I do kind of drag either my partner or or my parents along to appointments because sometimes I think you do need that other person because it's hard to digest everything that you're kind of been given. So it's nice to obviously since COVID being able to have someone in the appointments with me, it's been like really helpful. Sophie, can I ask when you're not navigating the wonderful national health service, <laughs> who are you? What do you do? Oh, what question? <laughs> Sometimes I, when I get asked that, I sometimes think it's a trick question because I'm like, am I the person I am before cancer or this new person that I am now? Um, yeah, I obviously recently got married, which is a positive. Um, I've got a little dog since um, diagnosis. Um, I've gone back to work, but only part-time. I just feel I struggle to be able to everything I can't just fit I can't describe it but I feel like I can't fit everything I need to in those days and I need those days for me since since my diagnosis because I know I need to prioritize going to the gym and like putting my mental health first rather than putting everything into into kind of my work and and things like that so yeah it's kind of and I also am always really cautious of that I don't want to overdo it and get run down and get ill. So it's just weighing everything up. It's kind of, it's it's hard, but yeah, I'm just trying to do it the best I can. Sophie, how are you coping from a psychological, emotional perspective? Because I can't imagine what it must be like to have gone through that treatment pathway and then also be suffering with late effects. You know, how do you, how do you cope from that perspective and have you had any intervention have you had counseling have you had psychological support um i've kind of dipped in and out of of different like um counselors and um yeah kind of mental health practitioners and yeah i'm currently kind of doing a a course through, like through the nhs but i've i was on a waiting list for forever so and sometimes the quality is obviously not as great. It's very bog standard, generic therapy. And I asked, I said, is there no one trained in trauma and things like that? Because it's all well and good speaking to a counsellor, but if they have no direct involvement in, say, cancer and things like that, it's it's hard for them to 
be able to dig deeper or know the right questions to ask they'll kind of just be talking to me like as it's as it's me now rather than trying to help me move on from what I've kind of gone through and would you say you have post-traumatic stress disorder or or kind of psychological trauma as a result of everything that you've been through I think it's hard not to like it's (laughs) obviously I've been through so much as as like a person and yeah been been at breaking points so many times and I just have to pick myself up and dust myself down and you kind of you you say I should be lucky because I'm alive like they saved my life I probably wouldn't be here without the treatment treatment I had so then you're kind of like that survivor's guilt that people say um you feel you feel guilty for even complaining about the quality of your life because there's other people who go through the same and aren't lucky enough to be here. Becca, how does hearing like Sophie's story, being part of Radiation Reveal, influence your research? So I'm actually the exact same age as Sophie and we realised this when we chatted the other day. And I think for me, um, I think it's really important to see the patients behind the disease that you're working on um, every day because it's very easy to get consumed by papers and facts and data and the cells and the right cancer models. Um, And then I think when I got involved in radiation reveal, having to um, be exposed to each individual patient's different stories and how they navigated the um the clinical side the diagnosis the treatment it was just like the whole other world that is kind of out of um the realms of research capabilities as what i thought like i can do as much work on x treatment um but there's still the whole other side that the patient has to navigate and and they still might end up having um difficulty getting there or getting access to a treatment or getting the right diagnosis so um, I think it was really eye-opening especially hearing how um, they experienced a lot of side effects with radiotherapy that I hadn't actually really read about Um, well I mean I'd heard about I think more of the papers I'd read talk about late toxicity and there's more research going on now looking into late effects but I don't think it's the primary focus of radiation research probably also because it's a difficult thing to model um late late effects you have to have something that's going to last that long as well like a model um but yeah I think it was understanding more about uh the patient's perception of radiotherapy the the problems the challenges that they think are um most important versus what we would prioritize in research and this was things like pain management whereas mostly when I'm thinking about making radiotherapy better I'm thinking about resistance to radiotherapy and improving radiosensitivity um, preventing metastasis rather than um, even some of the things as to how you receive your treatment and how it's broken up into sessions that makes it more convenient to your lifestyle Um, I think these things maybe maybe new radiation research will kind of be more focused on that 
but I think obviously it comes from researchers funded by charities. Charities want to improve um, survival um, of patients, and these are the kind of that's the kind of data that generates money for research rather than um, kind of more quality of life stuff. What's your PhD in, Becca? So my lab looked at the role of blood vessels, um, specifically endothelial cells lining the blood vessels and um, other cells such as parasites that also surround these blood vessels. And we look at how blood vessel signalling, as opposed to just being a a conduit for blood flow, um, how the signalling changes cancer progression, cancer metastases and response to therapy. So blood vessels like supply the tumour with nutrients, but they also um, are where the drug enters the tumour area, the tumour microenvironment. And specifically in my PhD project, I'm funded by RADnet. So I'm looking at how endothelial cells lining these tumour blood vessels respond to radiation and how the angiocrine signals, which are the chemical messages these blood vessels release, um, affect tumour sensitivity to radiation. Um, And one of the things I'm doing is developing radiosensitizing agents that specifically target these cells lining the blood vessels. Um, And what I do in the lab is, is basically analyze how these signals are changing and trying to make connections as to how these are changing the sensitivity of tumor cells to radiation and then trying to see how targeting these signals can improve tumor sensitivity, hopefully so you can get away with using lower doses by enhancing the radiotherapy effect. Um, And then finally, I'm also interrogating, I have a massive breast cancer, early stage breast cancer cohort, um, which I was lucky enough to get involved in. And I've been analyzing, been doing a lot of imaging and looking at, basically, I have loads of biopsies and using imaging markers I can say these are tumor cells these are blood vessels and these are the bits in between and what is my protein of interest expressed like in all these different areas and how does this correlate with response to radiotherapy and this kind of ties into the radiosensitizing agents we're developing angiogenesis get my geek on becca that sounds absolutely amazing and just hearing about kind of what you do and the cellular responses is absolutely incredible sophie were you aware that this is kind of the form of research that goes on in the background for someone who is then maybe receiving that type of treatment not really to be honest it does sound sound very complex i mean the closest to all that was when you're lying down in the machine and you can see all those numbers on the telly, that's probably how, how much I'm splitting each, whatever they test the Nord doing into each dose. See, that's what I mean. Like having an insight into it would be, it, it would be interesting to, like, if you're going through something bad, at least like we could learn a bit <laughs> along the way. And yeah, it is really interesting to hear about. Is that why you wanted to get involved in Radiation Reveal? Yeah, I think obviously, yeah, from a, a patient side, you don't really know much about how it gets to that point or 
the decisions that are made in your in your care that why is this the next next course of treatment that I'm I'm going to be doing yeah I think yeah science is obviously fascinating at times and yeah it would be nice to to understand it a little bit more especially as you've kind of been directly um affected by it Rebecca kind of hearing Sophie's story and being more involved with with patients and their experiences and hearing about their life stories does it motivate you in your job and in your research yeah massively I think since I did my undergraduate degree um, which was in medical sciences and I think it was really brilliant in, in terms of it was very much translational medical research and we got we actually had sessions where they'd bring in a patient a clinician and then we'd just be asking questions talking about the disease but also like the whole journey of the disease not just the biology of it the the symptoms the diagnosis the treatment and the whole yeah the whole passage of it and I think for me I love as much as I love biology and science it's not important to me unless it's kind of relevant to a patient and it's got some sort of clinical um, future to it or we can really kind of um, translate it so that's that's what I've benefited from mostly from doing patient engagement is kind of motivation um, and finding new things that we can research I know that obviously my PhD is kind of set in stone this is this is these are my aims but I think it's I have all of this broader knowledge of radiotherapy now and although it might not directly change how I write my thesis up or anything it's it's kind of made it more 4D I guess and I think I'm more I think I'm more passionate about it and and I think I've really enjoyed meeting a new people but I think it's interesting because Sophie talks about um her experience and it wasn't until I got involved in some projects with Lisa and we went to Guy's Hospital that I we did this um, patient survivor day and I actually I was really nerdy and I got to go onto the radiotherapy ward um, ward and I was looking around at the machines and I was just like I've never seen one in real life and I think for someone for a patient they probably think that I know this side of radiotherapy as well but I really don't (laughs) I mean, I'm mostly in the lab, in the office, um, and then working with my um, my kind of research versions of the real linear linear accelerators and such. So I think when I saw them, I was like, "Oh wow, these are they're really cool, cool machines." And um, I don't know. I think I wouldn't have gotten that opportunity if I hadn't done any sort of patient engagement. And most people in the lab it's I think maybe it's easier for them I know we're really busy people but I think maybe it's a lot easier to separate the whole clinical side and the research side and be like I'm gonna just focus on these problems and solve these and actually thinking about the clinical side is a lot more emotional emotionally draining um, and consuming and maybe some people don't like to be involved in that in that way you raised so many interesting points, Becca, and I would I would never have considered it in terms of kind of my knowledge of, of cancer researchers. I I would have thought that you get to see all the bigger pictures, but of course actually when I think about it now and working clinically, 
I never saw a researcher just walking around kind of going, oh, just tell me about your linear accelerator and can I talk to some patients? That never, ever happened. So at what point would you have ever had that experience? Um, so do you think that education should feature more heavily for for people doing research about maybe the patient experience side of things. And even if they are wanting to keep it separate from an emotional perspective and maybe focusing on specific um, kind of research elements, do you think that there is a bonus in maybe having that knowledge, having that kind of appreciation for an irradiator in a lab is very different to essentially what it would be from a linear accelerator? Yeah, I think it's really important to actually have the awareness because we spent so much money on buying this small animal um, irradiator. And then I think I spoke to someone and they were, they told me, oh, it's great, but it's nothing like what the patients have. And I think for me, I, I was really struck by that because I thought the whole point we were doing this preclinical research was to kind of mimic what the patients had and then I I think I was a bit disappointed that it wasn't um I don't know a compa directly comparable to what you guys have um and I think I was really amazed when I learning about all of the roles in um radiography therapeutic planning um looks really really complicated um and obviously I have to when I do preclinical research, I am um, I'm doing the anesthesia, I'm doing the treatment planning, um, and I'm doing the irradiation on on my own usually. Um, so it's a very different kind of um, treatment line, kind of I guess. Um, so I think for me it was interesting to see all of those roles. I don't know if for everyone it is beneficial, but I think since I was, since I think I first started doing research, I've realized how much disconnect there is between clinicians, researchers, and the patients. And every time I've had a chat with a doctor or a patient, they all want to know the other side better. And I just don't understand why there isn't more opportunity to translate. Like I've met doctors who want to do more research, researchers who want to do more patient involvement or actually going on going into the hospital but I think there's a lot of barriers to this maybe not enough opportunities probably funding wise but meeting all of the all of the young adults involved in radiation reveal all of them were so so keen to come visit the lab um, and learn about our research I, I invited some to our PhD um, annual day and they just loved asking all these questions to researchers and and I think I think some people think that you guys can't interact like a patient can't have a conversation with a researcher because they won't understand but actually some of the questions um, patients ask us just really humbles me and really makes me think shakes me up and makes me think of my research in a different way and the same having conversations with clinicians so I think if there's anything that I'm interested about in the future is really bridging those gaps and forcing people to talk, even when they don't think it's going to directly benefit them, more just for kind of, um, 
kind of improving improving the way we work together and maybe could find ways that we could help each other but I think generally research is a very competitive field um money is tight it's stressful so I think a lot of people are just like I'm here to do this job I'll do xyz for just a tick box exercise and I don't have the the time to do all these other things um when actually it, it might benefit them just they can't directly see it at the time I think even by you saying that like a lot of doctors have kind of said to me oh you speak like a doctor now and it's like I've had to consume and take in all of this information that eventually you you are going to pick up on things and you do kind of have to piece the pictures together and you know you know what you're talking about to an extent not just because you're not a doctor doesn't mean because obviously you're you're being affected by it firsthand that yeah (laughs) apparently I speak like a doctor now but (laughs) do you think you'd use that going forward like I know um I don't know if you met Holly from the radiation reveal project she has gone on to do like a lot of advocate roles and really exciting and I think she she speaks really well um and obviously it's a learning curve right now you have all of this kind of I guess medical knowledge do you know if you want to use it in any way or I guess that's why I'm probably so open with speaking about my my journey and kind of what I've been through because inevitably people are going to go go through similar and if if you can be of help to anyone going through similar in the future it's so it's only a good thing I think you're an expert by experience aren't you Sophie and an expert of everything that you've been through um I'm going to ask you a difficult question and absolutely you do not have to answer it at all if you don't want to if you could go back in time would you have still gone through cancer or is is even the thought of that just something that you can't even contemplate um I don't know (laughs) that's fine it's something that some people just wouldn't even think about um it's it's sometimes a question that we ask people because of maybe how life changes there was a key point that you said something that really struck with me was that you've changed like are you the same person that you were before cancer and I think that's sometimes something that a lot of people really struggle with is their identity who they are as a person you know hobbies that maybe you did previously that now you would find really hard because of the cancer treatment and the side effects and you're almost learning to be a different person as well as coming to terms with that person. Um, and for some people, there's grief for the person that they were previously. But I also see when I'm talking to, to patients, quite a lot of people would say, actually, I would have lived it again because of maybe what they've got now. Um, and the experiences that they've had that have led to opportunities that maybe they wouldn't have. So, yeah, it's it's a really hard question and one that I, I wasn't expecting you to necessarily be able to answer. Yeah, I guess like where you say about the the grief side of it, I think you genuinely are grieving a life whilst trying to live a life, which is kind of a situation that only survivors as such 
are living and I think being in the demographic of a young adult as well um childhood cancers are obviously really sad but they kind of probably don't know what's going on to an extent and most of the time it would be the guidance from their parents and the doctors pulling pulling all the strings um and then as you say older people they've lived that their life to the fullest up until their diagnosis point so yeah being a young adult it's kind of protect you have to kind of ignore what's going on and rebuild your life from scratch again and have things to to look forward to but I'm one of those (laughs) I'm usually quite negative in the sense of I get scared to plan things too far in advance because I don't know everything's so unpredictable with me that I don't want to book a holiday for a year's time and who knows what's going to happen in between but it's one of those things where you have to yeah do it and then once it comes around obviously it'll be worth it in the end but yeah it's it's a really hard thing trying to you kind of have to live your day by day week by week which is hard Sophie, were you in a relationship when you were going through cancer or did you meet the love of your life after you'd finished treatment? So we had only been together for about six to nine months. Um, well, that obviously COVID hit and he, he moved into my, my parents' house with me, obviously thinking it was going to be a few weeks of lockdown and then I can send him on his way again. But... <laughs> But then, obviously, I got diagnosed in that time as well. So he kind of was living out of the suitcase at my parents' house and then, yeah, never ended up leaving. And then we went straight into straight into our house that we bought. <laughs> um, that was probably about 12 months after, after I'd finished my treatment. And then, yeah, it's kind of just gone on from there, got engaged, got married. So, yeah, it's obviously we've gone through probably more than most couples would in their in their lives. And we're only we're not even 30 yet. So. <laughs> oh, bless you, Sophie. Tell us, what was your dress like? Because you're a beautiful girl. Did you go for the big meringue or did you go silky and sexy? <laughs> it was a bit in the middle, to be honest. Um, it was kind of backless, a really long train um yeah kind of just to the to the neck kind of thing so yeah <laughs> oh, lovely going through that diagnosis so early on in in your relationship do you think that did that affect you both a lot or did it did it make you a lot stronger do you think now um I think a lot of people around us are like if we could get through that together we can kind of get through through anything that's thrown our way um you do obviously it, it affects you personally but sometimes a lot of people forget the toll it does have on on your close friends and family um and it's yeah it's just the hardship that's on them you feel you feel guilty that you're um a burden to them needing their help with things and yeah you you do kind of rely on them a lot more than say a normal 26 year old girl probably would you do need that support thanks for being so open and honest about it it's always difficult to 
know how a relationship will develop um, when you're going through a difficult time like that. We're coming towards the end of the episode. So as you both know, we like to end the episodes with top tips for anyone listening. Sophie, I don't know if you wanted to start by giving us any top tips for our listeners. Um, I would say the one thing I've just learned from this whole experience is that you have to be an advocate for yourself and your own own health. No one knows your body better than you do. And if something's not right, it's probably not right. Um, I've obviously had to liaise throughout the different teams in my care. And yeah, that in itself brings a lot of anxieties. And it's, I think, a lot of, I would like to hope from that research side of things that people, more people now are surviving after they've had their treatment. And it's looking at that on how you can improve that in the future, because a lot of people are having to just kind of go back to normal and live a normal life, whatever that may be. So it's managing all the, the side effects and the quality of life after after treatment ends, I guess. Uh, I think as a scientist, I feel a responsibility to communicate my research and be open as possible. And I think that w- that is something I would encourage other people to do. Um, I, and I think it you learn a lot um, by doing things that don't always directly benefit you. Um, I think I've gained a lot more um, communication skills, learning how to talk to different people about my research. And I think it's mostly important to actually give back to people, people that fund your research, people that benefit from it, um, and people who you we use patient data, patient cells all the time. So I think we really owe it to to patients to tell them what we're doing and try and involve them in research in the best ways we can. Thank you so much. Thanks for a lot of incredible conversation today. It's been really nice to have you both on. So thank you for your time. Um, thank you everyone for listening to our chat. So your hosts today have been Naman Hansen and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked to the podcast. Uh, there's also an evaluation link for the series in the show notes. Please take time to complete it. Thank you for listening and take care.